from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, a broadcast that celebrates the talent and diversity of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies and provides a place to showcase their remarkable voices and stories. Welcome to another episode of Not Thinking Straight. On this episode, we celebrate performance art. My special guests are the Ironing Maidens, who take feminism into the laundrette and give it a good stir. And I'll give you a warning, this interview starts with a bang. But fortunately, no one was hurt in the making of the interview, although there was substantial property damage. You'll have to stay tuned to find out exactly what I'm talking about. And with my next special guest, you'll meet Jex Lopez, a stunning artist located in the Northern Rivers region, who, because of the pandemic, unfortunately, has had to delay her latest tour until next year. But in the meantime, she will be performing, hopefully, a one-person show at the Regent Theatre in Woolambar, all going well with lockdowns. In Making Gay History, we head back to 1973 with an interview between Studs Terkel and the author of Lesbian Nation, Jill Johnston. I don't think interview is actually the right term to use, but uh, here's a little preview. Well, this book is for my mother, who should have been a lesbian, and for my daughter, and hopes that she will be. It seems quite an outrageous epigraph, is it not? It seems that way. Lesbian Nation is the book by Jill Johnston. Well, quite obviously, you know, the much overused word controversial applies, but it's, a, it's provocative. I like the word provocative. It is that. She provokes, quite obviously. <laughs> anyway, quite marvelously, I think, too, though I disagree with her, of course, on many matters. Uh, <laughs> say, I, this is my way of saying... It's your way but, of saying you're a man. And I'm pretty sure that's not how you pronounce controversial. Whether you decide it's an interview or a wrestling match... I'm barracking for Jill. The interview begins our second hour. We begin with the extraordinary Taylor Mack. Surprise is what theatre is all about. And it might be an intellectual surprise or a sensual surprise. That's when we feel things is when we're surprised. My name is Taylor Mack and I'm a theatre artist. I do lots of different things. I'm a playwright, I'm a performance artist, I'm an actor. Sometimes I do them all separately and sometimes I do them all at the same time. Today, tonight, and tomorrow. I just finished making a show called A 24-Decade History of Popular Music. We performed a 24-hour show, version of it, last October in New York at St. Anne's, and now we're on tour with it. He cursed us with a Congress. But really what the show is, is it's grappling with various communities throughout uh, U.S. history that have built themselves as a result of being torn apart. The 24-decade history of popular music was inspired by the... Um, the first or second AIDS walk that ever happened in San Francisco because they were all uh, um, gathered together and building their community as a result of being torn apart and the history that they were bringing to um, this event and to their lives um, as a way to save their lives uh, a history that I hadn't ever been taught about um, that that certainly planted a seed in me so we deal with people who are on the trail of tears Uh, We deal with early temperance choirs and pub drinkers who are kind of battling it out. Deal with the Civil War. We deal with AIDS. That's, That's what the show is. I always feel that 
identity politics, identity, are a subplot for all my work, but they are never the point. So the point is to deal with communities. The context for which you're listening to all of that is queer, because I'm a big old queer and I make queer work. Rest in slumber, sound and deep. People will say, oh, do you feel like you're hiding in that costume? Or oh, it's such a great mask for you. And, and I mean, no, it's actually a reveal. So when I'm wearing what I'm wearing right now, that's when I'm hiding. You know, that's when I look like basically everybody else. But when I'm on stage, I'm trying to present something that is a heightened circumstance. I'm trying to risk something. So I have to expose something about myself. And so the, the, that heightened look, that is what I look like on the inside. I don't think that you give the audience what they want. If you, if you give them what they want, what they're asking for, then they will just ask for the same thing over and over and over again. And that's not actually going to dream the culture forward at all. That just keeps you where you are. People bring defenses with them to the theater. It's just, they might say that they're open, but they're actually not. They've got all these barriers. And so your job kind of is to just chisel away at their defenses. There's nothing safe in the theater. It's challenging, it's uncomfortable, it, it, it makes you risk. Uh, you know, it, you should have to go through something. I wanted to be the oddest looking person in the room and then get the audience to relate to me. Then maybe that would open something up in themselves that they didn't think was possible. What can one say about Taylor Mac? Taylor Mac is the author of Joy and Pandemic, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, a 24-decade history of popular music, which was actually a 24-hour show. He did either in four six-hour segments or on two occasions, 24 hours without a break. Prosperous Fools, Free, Her, The Walk Across America for Mother Earth, The Lily's Revenge, The Young Ladies of, Red Tide Blooming, Cardiac Arrest or Venus on a Half Clam, The Face of Liberalism, OK, A Crevice, The Hot Month, and reviews, Holiday Source, The Last Two People on Earth, created with Mandy Patinkin, Susan Stroman and Paul Ford, Comparison is Violence, and The Beast of Taylor Mac. Mac is the first American to receive the International Ibsen Award, is a MacArthur Fellow, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a Tony nominees for Best Play, and the recipient of the Kennedy Prize with Matt Ray, the Doris Duke Performing Artist Award, a Guggenheim, the Herb Albert Award, a Drama League Award, the Helen Merrill Playwriting Award, the Booth, two Helpman Awards, a New York Drama Critics Circle Award, two Obies, two Bessies, and an Ethel Eichelberger, an alumnus of New Dramatist, currently the resident playwright at the Here Arts Centre in New York. And now I will stop for a breath. Having met Taylor, both professionally and socially, I must say the difference between him out of character as a very humble, wonderful, warm human being and what you get to see on stage, which is this outrageous, energy-driven, simply unique performer, is wondrous worlds apart. But that's the nature of a true performer. I would encourage you to check him out on YouTube. And here he is with his version of Patti Smith's song, Birdland. My boyfriend can attest, I did rehearse. I tried, I did try. I tried to his great annoyance, but... Um, and the neighbours, you know, the neighbours pounding on the thin walls. Shut up with that song, that Patti Smith song. We, they want perfection on the other side of the walls. Not gonna give it to him. So this song 
Yeah, it's about a little boy, it's called Birdland. And it's actually based on a true story. Uh, it's about a little boy whose father was a physicist who was put in prison for his work, and he died in prison. And the little boy uh, went to the funeral, and he had a little breakdown of the mental kind. And he wrote a book about it called The Book of Dreams. And this is the song. His father died and left him a little farm in New England. All the long black funeral cars left the scene. And the boy stood there alone, staring. The shiny red tractor him and his daddy used to sit inside and circle the blue fields and grease the night. It was as if somebody had spread butter on all the fine points of the stars because when he looked up, they started to slip. And he put his head in the crux of his arm and he began to drift. control balls, streaming beads of light, he saw his daddy behind the control ball, it was very different tonight, cause he was not human. lit up with such a naked joy that the sun burned around his lids and his eyes were like two suns white lids white opals seeing everything just a little too clearly and he saw there, there were no black ships in sight no long black funeral cars nothing except him the raven he fell to his knees he looked up and he cried out Like the hands of Blake 
tearing at his cheeks, taking out his neck, his limbs, everything all twisted. And he cried, I won't give up. I won't give up. I won't give up. Don't let me give up. Please take me up quick. I won't give up. Please, please take me up. up, up. Take me up. To the belly of the ship. Let the ship slide open and I'll go inside of it where I am not human I am Helium Raven and this movie is mine and I won't give up he cried out as he stretched the sky pushing it all out like Nick Tech's cartoon Am I all alone in this generation? We'll be dreaming in animation night and day. And we won't give up. We won't give up. No, we won't give up. I couldn't hear him before, but I hear him now. Coming in like a, like, like a radar scope of silver and platinum lights. Coming in like black ships. He looked at the surface. He saw his face and where there were eyes, there were just two white opals. Where there were eyes, there were just two white opals. And he looked up and the ray shot and he saw Raven coming in and he crawled on his back. Shut 
Here is Taylor Mack talking about one of his recent plays, H.I.R. Her. When I first moved to New York and I was trying to be an actor and, and I hadn't discovered uh, what that meant, what the options of that could be for me. So then I discovered this club world that was uh, so fascinating to me in the sense that the, the, there were rules, but they were completely different. And you didn't have to ask for permission to be creative. You could just show up and do it. And then there was a community, too, that was there, that was present, that was progressive and radical and, uh, and interested in ideas. And, um, and you would think that nightlife would just be people drinking and partying and having a good time. And it is that as well. But there was also this, a, a real intellectual discourse that was happening. Because I think the form of that world was so liberating and um, so much not a part of a social dictate or social contract, uh, then the form of my theater could expand as well. The form of the art that I wanted to make um, could also kind of blow up. Even the work that, like here, which is a, a four-character kitchen sink drama is a, a dramedy or a black comedy or whatever you want to call it. I call it absurd realism, but, um, but it, it is uh, a piece that is addressing homogeneity and heterogeneity, and it is trying to be multiple things um, in a world that is asking it to be one thing. I started writing this play here, uh, I don't know what year it was, but it was right after I saw Buried Child, uh, the Stephen Wolf production of Buried Child that went to Broadway. And so... I had Sam Shepard on the brain when I wrote this play, and I obviously had this company on the brain when I wrote the play. Yeah, I, it was kind of my, it's, I wouldn't say it's my take on um, Sam Shepard, but it was definitely, it was, it was heavily influenced, I think. So it's thrilling to me to be a Steppenwolf. It's totally thrilling. It's like, oh my gosh, it happened. You know, it's like I manifested it. <laughs> like, you know. The catalyst for it was, certainly about uh, growing up in um, Stockton, California, and uh, in a place that I couldn't wait to get out of, couldn't wait to escape. I left, all my friends left, we're all doing amazing things. Everyone is really, really interesting and doing incredible stuff in the world, but, uh, but Stockton isn't. Stockton is uh, statistically one of the worst places to live in America and always has been in my lifetime. So that was the catalyst for the play. Uh, w what responsibility do we have um, to uh, something that has been abusive to us? The plot of the play is, it's a, a fairly simple plot. It's um, prodigal son comes home from the war and uh, everything that uh, he knew of home to be is now different. His sister is no longer his sister, but his transgender slash genderqueer uh, sibling. 
and uh, and so everything is different, and the house is a total disaster. Uh, the, the, fa the father made everything be orderly, uh, and now nothing is orderly. It's a, they've decided to basically deconstruct their home. Um, and, the, and this transgender um, uh, character, Max, is kind of stuck a, a little in the middle. A little bit, um, as and and it's in a lot of ways is my way of saying, what if America? We always think of the prodigal son as the metaphor for America, and what if the what if the metaphor for America was the transgender kid? You know, <laughs> instead, what what is what does that do to our understanding of the United States? Joe's Pub in New York is legendary for attracting incredible talent. Here is an excerpt from the 24-hour show I mentioned at the beginning of the program that Taylor Mac created celebrating popular music through the centuries. This song is After the Ball, a song from the 1890s. Will it be a tragedy or a comedy? We never know. Will we fall in love as a community with something that is actually special and wonderful and well-crafted? Or will it just be a piece of poo? We don't know. Any day it could be different. It's, that's the love of life. Okay, let's sing it. <sighs> A little maiden climbed an old man's knee, begged for a story. Do, Uncle, please. Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no babies? Have you no home? They didn't call it the gay 90s for nothing, right? The gay 90s. We all know why that uncle was single in the 1890s. But he, had, he couldn't say that, so he had to make up a story, and here's the story he made up. I had a sweetheart years, years ago Where she is now, pet, you will soon know <laughs> List to this story I'll tell it all In the grand ballroom Softly the music Playing sweet tunes There came my sweetheart My own, my love Fetch me some water Leave me my dove When I returned there stood a man kissing my sweetheart 
as lovers can. Down fell the glass. Broken, that's all. Just like my heart, love, after the ball. These songs don't end in one or two verses. They go on and on and on. There we go. It's an epic story. Long years have passed, pet. I never wed, true to my lost love. Though she is dead She tried to tell me Tried to explain I wouldn't listen Pleadings were vain Well then years later A letter came That man he was her brother, her brother. The letter ran, he was a brother. Shit. That's why I'm single. No home at all. I broke a heart pet after the ball. Even if it is a made-up story, the fact that somebody lived their whole life and had to make up a story like that, the kind of story you make up when you're 13, you know? But he's like an old man, he's an uncle. It actually is really kind of tragic. Either way, even if it's true, or even if it was this made-up story about a gay guy. So... This is the song that an entire generation rallied around. <laughs> Which tells me something. It tells me that um, even though it was the gay 90s, it was the happy 90s, 
people had some sorrowful shit in their hearts, right? Some sentiment, some cheap sentiment in their hearts. Because you only have cheap sentiment when um, truth is too wealthy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I tried to come up with something and it didn't work. <laughs> Sometimes it's good just to fess up. There's something in there, though. Somebody write that down and get it back to me. We'll do it in the real one, in the big concert. We'll do it. After the ball. Studios of Bay FM and Byron Bay, and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. I'm talking today with Melania Jack, one of two performers with her partner Patty, who together make up the Ironing Maidens, and they've just released a new single called Breathe Out. So Melania's come on, and we're going to talk about their music and how they're coping with the pandemic. And she's just told me this wonderful story she may not want me to share, but um, <laughs> the car backed into the... <laughs> I shouldn't even laugh. This is terrible. <laughs> Where I'm talking to her, the room I'm talking to her, a car backed into... <laughs> You tell just the story, I can't. Well, we should probably say, because then you can explain why I'm a little bit like, ah, you know, <laughs> but basically I was just sitting down to do the interview and a huge almighty, like, crash and the wall just came in at me from the other side of the room so yeah lucky we went on an air because it was a few swear words that came out and I went outside and yeah a bus literally just ran into my wall wow it's one of those days it's not even mercury retrograde yet but anyway and then I went out and I saw this poor darling like driving the bus and she's like ah, really upset and then she tried to reverse the bus back into the car park and ran into the other wall <laughs> oh like, no Oh my god! And aren't I naughty for laughing at that? That was just very <laughs> human reaction. But um, day. I'm looking at her and I'm looking at the wall, and it's just all very visual, folks. So. <laughs> <laughs> I must go on. Yes, must. Speaking of those going on and not going on, how's the pandemic been for you? Oh, it's been so random like it has for everyone. We had just spent six months producing a new show, The Soap Opera, which is, or I almost have to say was, a gig theatre piece. And we did Adelaide Fringe Festival, which was really fabulous. And we came back and we did a home show here in Cairns at the Tanks. And literally the next day, COVID hit, like the Tanks closed down. It was the last show. Everything collapsed. Our whole year of planned touring just went kind of like that bus just smashing through my wall it just sort of yeah it just all ground to a halt and yeah that was a bit wild and at first we we're like oh my god like everyone was what is going on how what will we do you know so yeah so we couldn't tour that show and we since then done what all of the artists in Australia are doing which is pivoting and pirouetting around to lots of different other projects which is interesting you know like 
it's given us a good chance to do some other things. And luckily, you know, artists are generally fairly flexible. Anyway, we're always making up new stuff. So yeah, we've done done a podcast pilot, which was sort of born out of the concepts of the soap opera. We also, we have been running a like a, a live stream project up here called Northern Intent, which features like artists from the local area. So we've been training some local people in camera and sound and streaming and running some small events up here because Gans is full of really amazing artists and we had a bit more time on our hands so we just thought we'd get out there with that for a while and we've been writing new music and and just I guess holding a little candle <laughs> for the industry that it will return you know and that we'll get back on to the stages we did at one point try and we thought fine we'll just go back to the laundry mats you know we'll just find laundry mats that have happened to back onto or open onto a car park but then once we started looking at the COVID restriction the you know the planning and the infrastructure that would that kind of tour would require it was like yeah definitely you might explain to the listeners the, why you go to laundromats and how the show, a lot of them wouldn't know the implements and ah, yes. concepts. So tell us. Yes. Why are they going to laundromats indeed? Just <laughs> um, <laughs> so you sometimes. But it really just because, you know, um, I guess a few years ago when we started The Ironing Maidens, it, it's sort of a show that doesn't really fit particularly in a box very easily. And it's very much on the outside fringes of both the music and the theatre world. So we really wanted to just really road test it. So we decided to tour regional laundromats because it was a way we could be really basically independent and just work those tours the way we wanted to and also so we could be really close to the audience and have this kind of very close experience where the feedback is right in front of you if someone doesn't like it their face is only two meters from you you can see (laughs) you know so it was a really great way to really road test the work and also the irons we have like irons and ironing boards that we've turned into electronic instruments. And we also had a, a like a lighting rig that fit inside of the dryers and all sorts of stuff going on. So we just really had to road test and constantly be soldering, you know, irons back together in between shows. You know, that was my favorite. I just, the laundromat tours we did in Queensland and New South Wales, and they were fabulous. And I do hope we get back out to the laundromats again when things ease up, really. Because there's some fabulous laundromats around, great spaces for performing. So beautiful. And it's such a, you know, it's such a great experience for the audience because the laundromat is still operating. The dryers are still going. People are still doing their washing. They will come in and chuck their their laundry in behind me while I'm singing. (laughs) And sometimes I have to give them a hand, give them some (laughs) spare change. And also, you know, it's got that smell of the the soap powder and it's warm and cosy, very warm and cosy actually when we toured New South Wales it was the middle of summer so some of those laundromats like out there in Dubbo and Armadale it was really hot with 120 people crammed inside a tiny laundromat so it's very experiential. Your place, I am a table head. 
Tell us about that podcast. If people want to listen to the podcast, how would they do that? Yeah, the podcast, you can pop over to our website, which is www.ironingmaidens.com. And there's a a page there where you can have a listen. It is a pilot and we're sort of looking for feedback and kind of just trialing it at the moment because it's actually a narrative-based project. That took us a long time. It's take We started it in January thinking, ah, podcast, we'll just knock one out. <laughs> it's taken us six months to write the scripts. We've worked with the really fabulous soap opera writer, Annette Moore, who actually has written for soap operas like Home and Away and All Saints and stuff like that. So she's fabulous to work with on the narrative. And, you know, we had actors here in Cairns and a director and you know, a whole team of people working on it. So it's taken a bit of time and we're just, yeah, looking for feedback on the pilot so we can look towards the series in the new year. And tell us about the album that you've been working on the last year and the single that's just coming, Breathe Out, it's called. The new single is one of the elements that has come out of a soap opera musically because it was one of the tracks that was a particular favourite for us and we kind of wanted to just resurrect some of that material and keep it alive, as the show itself won't tour at the moment. So Breathe Out was a point in the show 
where Katie, who I'm, I play Katie and she's a housewife. She's a bit overwhelmed. She's got so much going on. She's dealing with, you know, so many appliances and jobs. And she basically just melts down and has a near-death experience. She goes out of her body and in her near-death experience of overwhelm, she meets Daphne Aram, who is, um, I guess, the godmother of electronic music. Daphne was producing electronic music back in the 40s and 50s, and she's sort of the heroine of our show. So Katie meets Daphne and Daphne kind of explains to her the story of her experience of trying to establish the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and her own sense of feeling undervalued and overwhelmed. And so she just kind of gives Katie a bit of a pep talk to get back out there in the world you know, to make that choice to come back and keep on living and performing and maybe with a little less emphasis on the housework. (laughs) So it's a story, I guess when you see it in context of the show, you probably get more of that. And you'll also get more of that when the music film clip comes out in a couple of weeks. But I guess it just carries that essence of these fabulous electronic musicians like Daphne who come before us and just that connection to that lineage of our work. That particular show uh, that you took to the Adelaide Fringe, would that be suitable both for a small venue and a big one? What's the concept with that? Because it was a piece that was like a gig theatre piece. It had a set, it was very large, it was a big stage production. So that's why we sort of just can't tour it at the moment. It won't fit in a laundromat. (laughs) <laughs> well, it might fit in your room now that the walls fall down. So. I've made some more room out there. <laughs> you might be able to get and the bus. <laughs> make that the performance space because it does lead out onto a car park, which oh, is how I <laughs> bro- broke in through my studio wall anyway. So. <laughs> does the Australia Council give you any assistance or funding? We've been, we've been really um, lucky this year. We've had digital adaptation funding for the podcast and the streaming projects from the Regional Arts Fund through Flying Arts and Arts Queensland. So that was really supportive this year and it just meant that we could keep on working. With the lockdowns, has that been a good time, a good space for you to work on material or is it driving you up the wall? But um, we have both been busy. I guess we both also work in other, you know, jobs and that, you know, there's life goes on, I guess. What was the question again? Sorry. Whether the, whether the lockdown had provided a, a good emotional space or was time to work on new material and some artists find it does and some artists find it terribly claustrophobic. I was just wondering how. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess for us, it meant that we couldn't do live shows, so we focused on the other projects and I also find I just feel like I always work better when I know I've got a show coming up it really <laughs> puts a bomb under me <laughs> so having no shows was a bit difficult and I think actually out of the projects probably the slowest to occur this last six months were the singles because we didn't have a show to show them at so I just you know focused on other projects first but now that we do have a show finally coming up on the 1st of October, next Friday, which is at the Tanks again. So we're sort of going back to pre-COVID. It'll be our first can show since that pre-COVID show. And it's really exciting because the Tanks is just such a fabulous venue to perform at. Like it is beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is literally like these big old concrete tanks from the war that have been transformed into an art center. So the Space Tank 5 has a beautiful, big state-of-the-art stage with amazing sound and the most incredible lighting. I'm always excited to get back there. We have a choreographer working with us and with some dancers. So it'll be really like fully just dance 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 because we can right now 
in the tanks in Cairns, which I feel like because so many people in the world just can't do that, they don't have access to go to something like that. I feel like it's our, you know, it's our responsibility to dance as hard as we can and make the most of it. And Cairns has got such a buzz to it and the creativity, you can feel it in the streets. It is. And look, it's got a really fabulous little underground scene here of artists. We really feel like we're surrounded by so many, you know, fabulous and prolific artists up here. And there are some really gorgeous venues, amazing venues to perform at up here. So we're quite lucky. Yeah. So Breathe Um, Out, the new single, Breathe Out, Breathe Out. Yeah, the, the Breathe Out, yeah. That's it. Ironing ladies and breathe out or breathe in, ironing maidens. I've got to get it right. This lockdown is doing my head in. Sounds like we're doing a breath meditation workshop. It is. (laughs) Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, um, I guess the other part of the story is is just talking about the housework and why, you know, Katie had such a massive overwhelm moment and that is around the housework and that's what the Ironing Maidens does speak to a lot. We do feel that the domestic sphere is the last frontier when it comes to gender equality in the world and that, that a lot needs to change there. We're really sort of stuck in the 50s when it comes to gender equality at home. So for us, particularly during this COVID time, like, so many people are, you know, it's more people are at home. So there's more housework created at home, which all of the studies are showing already that most of that work is all being picked up by women still. And so it's kind of like speaking about that overwhelm that many women are, you know, currently experiencing trying to work from home. You know, there's a lot of people who are educating their children from home, trying to hang on to paid jobs when actually the employment sector is rapidly moving. And also just at the same time, keeping up with this never ending supply of housework and all the emotional labor that it takes to keep a household functioning. So we've just really, I guess, is still speaking to those same issues that women's work needs to be valued, you know, at home, in the workplace. That's kind of, I guess, the underlying messaging in this song as well and relates to that kind of connection between the the housework and the work in the world. And why is it seen to be so different? Why is it less valued and unpaid and unappreciated and, and also just expected because of your gender? You know, and I guess because we've we've spoken to many like women after the shows and heard so many personal stories. Some people come to the shows just because they can't understand why you would do a, a show about ironing. And other people come because they really love ironing and they're fanatics and bring their ironing boards. And then, you know, we also hear this other side, more of a darker side of women feeling that overwhelm, which reaches, you know, a level of feeling trapped and feeling like their self-worth is slipping away. And some people have spoken to us around, you know, even suicidal feelings of being that overwhelmed by actually housework, that it's, it's just been too much for them. And so we kind of do feel it's really important that while we, we wrap it up in a lot of humor for us, it's actually a really very important part of this movement towards gender equality. You know, we're also seeing it, the long-term effects of this whole situation and the rise of homelessness amongst older women. It's an interconnected situation, but we feel if everyone just started sharing the domestic load at home, hashtag share the load, then we might start moving forward. And we don't want to wait another 25 years for gender equality. It's so boring. I'd love to just get to gender equality and then I can do a whole new band about something else, you know? I don't have to iron forever. (laughs) 
from the 1950 home economics book, Tips to Look mm. After Your Husband. You've probably oh. seen it. <laughs> uh, have it. dinner ready, prepare yourself, <laughs> clear away the clutter, prepare the children, minimise all noise, some don'ts, make him comfortable, listen to him, mm. make his evening. The goal <laughs> is to make your home a place of peace and order where your husband can renew himself in body and spirit. Yeah, that's why I'm going, I'm going to be a husband now. I'm just going to be a husband. Because it seems like they get they get all the good good stuff. We were actually looking at the definitions the other day. When you talk about housework, you have housewifery, which is anything that's like cleaning or cooking or sewing or anything like that. But the male version is husbandry, which I can't, can't ever think of anyone having used that term in a sentence apart from animal husbandry but (laughs) I know but apparently um husbandry is more management and administration and that kind of thing so it's okay to take it seriously if a man's doing it but if a woman's doing it then she's just expected to kind of you know get all that stuff done the universe has given you your very first job as house husband is to fix that bloody wall up I know I have a wall to fix now (laughs) I don't have time for the ironing you cake all day I could put the laundry away I could do the dishes forget about my wishes and clean my fucking dreams away or you could meet me halfway at home you could sit and listen to me moan you can take the basket write yourself a task list and decide which detergent is the go Bending over a washtub all her life while dad went around as free as air. I 
Now we're going to hear the Ironing Maiden's new single, Breathe Out.
song so haunting this is daphne's real word you know that is spoken in the track this is a real actual daphne words explaining her own story we visited the daphne aram and archive in london so just before covid we luckily had a little moment in time where we we went over to london and researched her archive and that was really fascinating like she's such an amazing brilliant mind really different thinker for those days it's amazing like reading through her like listening to all of her music of course and looking at all of her notes but finding little notes of little handwritten notes that say shopping double a batteries flower tea salt cassettes more double a batteries flower cassettes <laughs> it really made me think as an artist you've got to be careful what you leave behind in your notes <laughs> burn it all before i go because it all ends up in an archive and you've got people like me looking at it going hmm she used a too many double a battery <laughs> <laughs> what appliances would, would have gone with that well that was while she was building her aramics machine which was arguably one of the world's first synthesizers and um she yeah she she'd converted an old oyster oyster house you know like basically a, a turret into her studio and she, it was actually the the first privately owned studio in the uk and yeah she was just really cool i'd love to have met her well look it's been lovely to talk to you and lovely to see you again to our listeners i would just encourage them to support our australian artists and, and wonderful people like the ironing maidens and go on those uh download sites and buy their music and listen to it and spread the word and become a friend of theirs on their Facebook and follow them. It's yeah, been great lovely to, to chat, Michael. Thank you so much for interviewing us. Do my first interview off the rank too. Oh, so great. really nice, very auspicious. Okay, have a great afternoon. You too. Thanks, Michael. Bye. Bye. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And to open our second hour, we go to the project Making Gay History, back in 1973, with an interview between Studs Terkel and Jill Johnston. Hi, History Makers. Eric here. Thank you so much to all of you who recently donated to support Making Gay History. Because of you, we were able to meet $35,000 in challenge grants, which helped pay for the production costs of our current podcast season. And we couldn't be more grateful. Of course, as a small nonprofit, we can't rest on our fundraising laurels for long. There are future Making Gay History seasons to plan for, and your support remains vital. So please help us continue to bring LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it by donating at makinggayhistory.org/support. That's makinggayhistory.org/support. And thanks. Well, this book is for my mother, who should have been a lesbian, and for my daughter, in hopes that she will be. It seems quite an outrageous epigraph, is it not? It seems that way. Lesbian Nation is the book by Jill Johnston. 
Well, quite obviously, you know, the much overused word controversial applies, but it's, a, it's provocative. I like the word provocative. It is that. She provokes, quite obviously. <laughs> anyway, and quite marvelously, I think, too, though I disagree with her, of course, on many matters, uh, <laughs> say, I, this is my way of saying... It's your way of saying you're a man. Way of saying I'm a man, of course. <laughs> At the same time, knowing full well that a great deal of what she says is, is bone-deep truth. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. One of the things I love about mining the Studs Terkel Radio Archive is the time travel. The chance to go back decades and hear the voices of people I'd only read about, like Lorraine Hansberry and Christopher Isherwood. Or the stories of people who were long forgotten, like female impersonator Les Lee. I also enjoy listening to Studs Terkel, his curiosity, his proudly lefty opinions, and the way he connected with the people sitting across from him. But sometimes that was a struggle, as you'll hear in his early 1970s interview with lesbian feminist separatist Jill Johnston. Jill Johnston was born in London in 1929 to an American nurse and an English bellmaker. Her father left the picture soon after Jill was born. She was raised by her mother and grandmother in Queens, New York. In 1959, Jill started writing for the alternative downtown newspaper, The Village Voice. She began as a dance critic and later moved on to writing more personal columns, where she embraced all things avant-garde and countercultural. A year after the Stonewall Uprising, Jill came out in print as a lesbian. Her focus shifted from the cultural to the political, and she began advocating for a complete break from men and their institutions. She got a lot of attention for pronouncements like, all women are lesbians except those who don't know it yet. But there was more to Jill than just her talent for provocation. Her work was welcomed by women who felt sidelined both in the male-dominated gay liberation movement and the feminist movement, which was often hostile to lesbians. Even at a time when radical thought was widespread, Jill's views pushed the envelope and pushed Studs Terkel's buttons when he interviewed Jill about her book, Lesbian Nation. Let's join the two of them as they lock horns in a conversation first broadcast on June 29th, 1973. There's something I want to ask you about, not mm-hmm. challenge you, but just wonder about. You say that a woman is not free liberated unless she's a lesbian. Now, isn't mm-hmm. this kind of fascistic mm-hmm. on your part? Well, it's, it's uh, the use of the word fascistic. Is no, you know why I say uh, this? I'm, I'm saying when yeah, you say no right. woman yeah. can be a free woman, she's living, aren't you denying people the right to be what they are, no matter what? Well, we as women, as you know, there is a feminist movement, and women have been denied the right to be what they are. Uh, so oh, I agree. <laughs> I agree so, with that. So, you know, we have to start with beginnings. Um, the, the, it depends how you're defining lesbian. You see, I, ha- I have a political definition of lesbianism, yeah. and uh, it, what it really means is self-commitment. And we know that um, we have a feminist movement because women have been been denied self-commitment. And uh, we're just updating feminism by calling it lesbianism because we feel that um, total commitment to ourselves would include every phase of our activities. <laughs> no, I see. I was uh, using the word bonding then. of women. Using the word lesbian in a much broader sense. Oh, then. yes. Sure, I see. Yeah. Well, that's perhaps it should be made clear. I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's why this book is yeah. a political book, basically. Yeah. Yeah. 
as a result of which sometimes your stuff seems outrageous, but it's almost mm-hmm. deliberate. I mean, isn't that yes. the point? That is to outrage, <laughs> to disturb. Hmm. Well, I, 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 it's a funny thing, you know. I just say what I'm into. Yeah. You know, I don't. Yeah. I don't set out to outrage. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, and uh, it seems that that where I'm at is not. It, it does tend to be outrageous. And perhaps yeah. we could talk about that reactions to you when you appear publicly. Mm. I'm talk. I'm not talking about the inner circles of New York or village or village. I'm talking yeah. about outside, west of the Hudson. When you mm. appear, what is the first reaction? Uh, there's a great range, you know, from dummies to smarties, and and people in yellow dresses and heels and stockings and girdles to um, to. Uh, but you're not calling them dummies, though, are you? Yeah. Girls in yellow dresses. Why? Well, I had this experience in Seattle recently. A woman in a yellow dress, <laughs> just like that. Who just stopped me before I got on? You know, yeah, she well, did, took a look at my boots and she signaled the director to cut our time in half, and and she was uh, extremely hostile. Well, she really, you know, no, it's just no. acting as a censor. Yeah. Now, what do you think made her do that? Fear. Yeah, I suppose. Well, I I think um, it's the way the culture uh, has brought us all up, you know, and uh, it's in the last decade or so that. Um, with psychedelics and people's heads have opened up more and they're uh, more accepting if not just tolerant of uh, all different ways of behaving. Uh, America hasn't been noted for its uh, tolerance of uh, just eccentricity, Mm -hmm. people who are eccentric. People who are different. Yeah, Yeah, just because they wear checkered hats or something. But how did it begin, yourself, your consciousness, your awareness, that say you were a lesbian? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. A lesbian now in the sexual yeah. sense, you know. Well, I was born a lesbian, yeah. you know. <laughs> I suppose all men are lesbians, too, from that point of view. <laughs> it's all men came out of their mothers. Yeah. Uh, our first great sexual experience was with our mothers. And I think that all sexual experience afterwards is a recreation of that experience. And so from that point of view, it's a perversion for women to sleep with men or to, to be invaded by men. I think that... Uh, that women, as well as men, want to recreate their original unity with their mothers. Isn't this, uh, forgive me, see, you have your right. Aren't you denying what is the natural impulses of people, each of whom is different and unique? Aren't you denying that right? Uh, you say, you say it's a perversion a, for a woman to sleep culture, with a man, you see. You see? Well, uh, that isn't, isn't that an yes. individual well, we matter? we live in a culture, and by definition, a culture is a perversion of nature. Well, I, I don't know. Keep going. I don't quite. You lost me there. Well, you see, when you say natural instincts, we don't know too much what our natural instincts are by this time in history because we have been so diverted by uh, cultural conditionings. Of all, all of us have been so heavily conditioned, and um, so I think this. My book is a story of growing up as a as a conditioned person who is instinctively at odds with um, the social forces around me and not knowing that you see i was a, just a naturally acculturated female although i had certain advantages as a female i didn't have a father or brother and um uh, this permitted me more mobility you know i wasn't stuck in a girdle as soon as i was born or anything i was very athletic and uh, what they would call a tomboy or something and and uh, then I became intellectually curious, and so I uh, was um, mentally mobile, too. And 
um, I, I found that all of this mobility was uh, in opposition to the social forces of of the male world, which um, which tends to prohibit women from this mobility at every turn. But I didn't know that this was happening, so this threw me into conflict with my culture, and um, so so that I think that my emergence as an outrageous person. Um, is really a recovery of my original mobility, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, and a reassertion of that mm -hmm. and the the advantage that I experienced as a child. Yeah, I think that the, that which has passed between a woman's legs has gotten out of her control. If you, uh, that seems to me a pretty that's basic way of yeah, basic a, way of putting a, it. Yeah, so she produced. Uh, it was a mutual production, though, wasn't it? I don't know. We don't know how I mean, it, could have been how produced. it all came. I mean, about. there was a seed. Where'd the seed come from? Well, of course, we, we might have been closer to uh, parthenogenetic uh, types of animals. We don't know how this um, interdependent reproductive process emerged. We don't. We don't. Uh, we we really don't want to be dependent on another creature for our reproduction. I don't think psychically that we want to, and I think this is the tragedy of animals that are divided into two sexes. You see. You know, aren't you talking about something else? We hear the overused word alienation, yet we know there's a truth to it. People remove one from the other. Aren't you talking going a step further in removal? person being uniquely not so... Uh, autonomy, by all means, beautiful. But mm -hmm. You're talking now about removal from another person entirely mm. when you speak of a part Well, autonomy does tend to mean that, does tend to mean removal. Autonomy to me means control of or self. Or it means, uh, yes, control of self. And control of self would mean um, bonding with your peer group. See? What about bonding with other groups? Isn't this what, isn't this what the hope, the salvation of the, of the human race you would mean be? You mean separate but equal or something? No, no. <laughs> I don't words in my mouth. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you mean exactly. I'm talking the fact that you say it's a perversion for women to sleep with men. I'm talking now about the natural impulse of each individual to be lesbian woman, to be a homosexual guy, or to be a, mm -hmm. a heterosexual man or woman. And you're right, of course, it's a heterosexually dominated society. Yes. A world, I agree. But let both, um, or let all three or four or five or six, whatever dimensions they may be, flower. Yes, but we're now engaged in revolution. You're ah. talking in a post-revolutionary sense. But you are thinking, but don't you have to think in that sense too? In other words, you are taking what be an extremely militant position, deliberately, and the outrage is necessary. But you, you don't see this as the end. That's what I meant. I was assuming that you see this as the ultimate, the ultimate destiny well, of Well, you know, just speaking and thinking of the end is a kind of uh, a desultory exercise. It's, uh, it's <laughs> you know... It's a it's a it's a fantasy. Why we're we're engaged in the immediate now? You know, <clears throat> if if we did live in a liberated society, as a, some utopian idea, uh, just engaging in heterosexual sex for a woman would not necessarily mean being oppressed, or you know. Uh, but uh, I think you have to separate the notion of the actual activity from the institution which lies behind the activity. And uh, so the, we are defining ourselves as a class. The class of men oppresses the class of women, and the inst and uh, the institution through which they do that is the heterosexual institution. But you also you have child. 
Oh, two children. Yeah, no, how, that's what I mean. No. Yeah, well, I just I succumbed to the male corporation. I did what normal pe women are supposed to do, and I got married. So I, I was married for three or four years. Was that rough? It wasn't very nice. <laughs> my line about that is that my marriage was an exercise in violence interrupted by short periods of violence. <laughs> Are you sorry you had the children? Well, I no, I, I couldn't say I was sorry. I'm not sorry about anything. I'd only say that uh, I, I'm, I'm quite certain if I, if I knew better then, I probably wouldn't have had children if I had been politically aware. Because for, you know, what, how it, what it is for a woman to have child and society now without our communal child care centers and so forth. It's an impossible situation. Well, it's course. a sacrificial <coughs> action and uh, we are now I think uh, directed towards non-sacrifice as women. And you're listening to another episode of Making Gay History on Not Thinking Straight. But isn't there something else? Of course, obviously, we're in agreement <laughs> about child care centers and, and, mm. the, and the rights of women and mothers. Mothers, I said. Mm. Uh, so what, what, what about your two children? I don't mean to be too personal, so stop yeah. me. What about your two children, uh, your thoughts and their thoughts? I don't think about it much. Do you see them? Not much. No. I'm, I'm back to uh, the theme. There are now millions of lonely, alienated people living behind the billboards, non-celebrated. Mm -hmm. Homosexuals, lesbians, heterosexuals. How is the lot of these people to be endured and improved? How, you know, in our society? Well, you can't have, uh, you can't have a socialist revolution without a woman's revolution. I mean, the people at the bottom of the heap are women. When people bring up human liberation, I say, well, are we talking about feminism or not? See, feminism is about women. We're talking about feminism plus. Well, I, I'm talking about feminism because I'm involved in, in a partisan movement, because I'm involved in the movement that most directly concerns me. I never thought I'd get into a social trip, you know. Where's that? <laughs> well, I was so much on the artist trip and the mystical religious artist oh, trip. Well, oh, yeah, that might be worth, during the time remaining, perhaps, mm. that how did that shift occur? You, you were an artist in your yeah. Greenwich Village, and uh, when did the political and social Well, I was 69, aspects? really, basically, 1969. There was all that feminism around already mm. for two or three years or more, and I, didn't, I, I just had glimmerings of it, heard a little bit, sifted in a bit. I think the way I came to it was that I was by that time an angry lesbian. I, I, was, I was pretty certain that by this time I was being discriminated mm. against, if mm. not as a woman, at mm. least as a lesbian. Mm. That had become increasingly clear. So I had by this time a personal, uh, confessional sort of autobiographical column. Uh, so I was beginning to come out, and then all of a sudden there was the conjunction of me and my anger and my mm -hmm. life with, mm -hmm. uh, with the Gay Liberation Front. Mm -hmm. And uh, that threw me into my, my first kind of uh, consciousness of, of myself as a political person. Mm -hmm. So then, with, then I gradually, over a period of two years, by, by 1971, I would say, I had read enough basic feminist literature to put the two things together. You know. And then the problem seemed to me to uh, articulate a lesbian feminist position. It's very, it was very clear. I couldn't separate myself at some point. Uh, uh, being a lesbian, being a woman mm. was all the same thing to me, you see. 
But you see, it means being a woman identify a woman. But you see, your condition was connected with the condition of others. That now, aside from oh yeah, I uh, started to go to those indignation meetings right. Yeah, <laughs> right. I went to went to a few of those, and I could see these people were angry. And at first, they were the other to me. You know, they, you know how they, something who's is the they different. You're talking about now? Well, these women at. Uh, women and men at Gay Liberation Front mm-hmm. meetings, everybody yelling yeah. and carrying on mm-hmm. and really angry, yeah. and they didn't represent me at that time. Mm-hmm. They were still the other mm-hmm. freaky people because mm-hmm. I wasn't who I was. But now I'm going a step beyond. Now, did you become interested in other matters, too, outside of gay liberation? Well, gay that, that, of course, then um, stimulated my uh, a latent interest in Marxism and uh, Socialist thinking. I'm thinking also anti-war protests. No, I never got into that. I think that's a man's game. How? What? (laughs) How come? Peace demonstrations. Well, tell me about that. I never went to one of those. (laughs) We're on to something now. Wait just a minute now. So you don't see uh, anti-war sentiments expressed in coalition and group as being anything to do with women's liberation? Well, yes, but I mean, uh, to, uh, to to just get into anti-war demonstrations with men is to participate in the man's war against men, and to come and just to say I'm against war it seems to be very simple-minded. It's so simple-minded. No, how? And you didn't take part. Or I, I'm not. I'm not well, being righteous now. I'm not talking. Uh, yes. I'm talking now yeah. about the killing of women and children. Yes. And attempts to stop the killing of women and children. Yes. But the, the, because uh, because as long as we live in a man's culture, men will go on killing women and children. So what we are doing is so what are you, wh- we're wh- working on a, a woman's cu- we're working on a woman's culture to stop this. No wait, how are you, you so can't. I'm talking about direct stopping of a bombing of Cambodian villagers right now. Well, if they don't do it there, they'll do it someplace else. As long oh. as we have men in the government, they're going to continue doing that. You know what? I hate to say this. If this is your approach, Nixon has nothing to worry about. He, well, uh, that's been my position all along. No, because this is, Nixon is just one guy. And I'm saying that if your Nixon approach, the approach the, of all women, Nixon represents the about. American people, and the American people are basically men. Nixon is no big deal. He's just like all the other guys. No, I'm saying something else. Oh, excuse me. I'm condemning you. Yes. I'm saying that if this was your if your approach about talking about the anti-war demonstrations and the stopping. Involving men as well as women. Well, I have to use a metaphor to explain yeah. what I mean. Yeah. That is, you have, um, uh, let's say you have a, a tower uh, made of um, blocks, and um, supposing the inside of this tower is rotten, you know, and um, feminism is working at the bottom of this rotten tower, mm-hmm. and until until woman's culture and until feminism and the female principle has more leverage in the world at large, they, they're going to ha- go on having this rotten tower. And women and children are killed in the homes, never mind, uh, never mind Cambodia. Both. Women and children, why, uh, every, why, why not? it's the killing in Cambodia is a reflection of the killing of women and children in the homes. It's just a reflection. I'm not denying that. Yeah. I'm really saying that metaphor or no metaphor, of course the tower has to be rebuilt. Mm. But in the meantime, there are human lives involved in the home, of course, as yeah. well as in Cambodia. I know, but if I if I diverted all of my time into stopping the bombing in Cambodia, yeah. uh, you know, then I wouldn't have yeah. I wouldn't have time to work on the real basis. It's obvious that Jill Johnson and I are just beginning our conversations. <laughs> we'll call this an open-end close. You know, I find that it's narrow. I mean, uh, much as I admire your position, I think mm-hmm. it's narrow in that it does not include the other. There has to be cooperation with this other 
species called mm. man, too. Well, women have cooperated with men for a long time. Any other thing you feel like saying? <laughs> Pardon? Anything you feel like saying as we're saying? Uh, well, I now. think you'll see that, uh, that uh, in the end you'll see that we're right, that, that this is the really broad approach to the world's problems. One of them. Jill Johnson, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Jill Johnston remained committed to the feminist cause, although she later came to refer to her book, Lesbian Nation, as a period piece. She continued to write as a cultural critic and about her own life. Her final book was a biography of the father she never knew. In 1993, Jill married her longtime partner, Ingrid Neubau, in Denmark. The couple married again in Connecticut a year before Jill's death on September 18, 2010. She was 81. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Senior producer Nahani Rouse, co-producer and deputy director Inga Dataya, researcher Brian Faree, photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Denny Olarenko. Special thanks to our guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and our founding editor and producer, Sarah Burningham. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season 8 of this podcast is produced in association with the Studs Terkel Radio Archive, which is managed by WFMT in partnership with the Chicago History Museum. A very special thank you to Allison Shine Holmes, Director of Media Archives at WTTW Chicago PBS and WFMT Chicago, for giving us access to Studs Terkel's treasure trove of interviews. You can find many of them at studsterkel.wfmt.com. Season 8 of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, Proud Chicagoans Barbara Levy Kipper and Erwin and Andrew Press, and our listeners, including... Van and Tina Vandewater, and Hal Brody and Don Smith. Thanks, Van and Tina. Thanks, Hal and Don. If you're not already a subscriber to our newsletter, sign up so you're the first to know what we've got coming up. You can do that at makinggayhistory.com. Our website is also where you'll find previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. So long, until next time.
2007 album entitled 12, which were 12 cover versions of other people's work, which went largely unnoticed, apart from fans. Patti Smith with Everybody Wants to Rule the World. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay, and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. My fabulous guest today is Jex Lopez. I gave Jex a little bit of an apology recently. I've been living in this shire for 15 years and thought I was sort of had my finger on the pulse. And someone sent me one of her songs the other day in the video and I was completely blown away. I just thought, how could I have not known this person? <laughs> only living 40 minutes away. So Jex... Thank you for being so gracious about my ignorance, but I hope you accept my um, enthusiastic love of your work. Really incredible stuff. So welcome to Not Thinking Straight. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And I don't I don't blame you that you haven't heard of my work yet because I haven't I don't really perform much in the Byron area. I could probably count the amount of times. I think I did Byron Market once with my band ages ago and that's about it. So but that's that's gonna change. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Your work really is extraordinary, right up there with some of the best I've ever heard. And I'm a huge fan in like a day. <laughs> so you got me one over. So tell me a little bit about your life. Where were you born? 
if you wanted to tell me. Okay. Oh, well, I was actually born in Penrith. All right. Um, and I, but I actually grew up in the Blue Mountains. Nice spot. Yeah. We grew up backing onto bush. That was um, very memorable part of my childhood. It was kind of before everyone got so fearful about stranger danger and and so we actually were in the bush a lot by ourselves near the home but we had a lot of time you know imagining and playing in with the rocks and the trees and yeah it was a it was a nice time <laughs> when you were a musical child did you like music when you were young uh yeah i i actually had piano lessons from maybe five years old i gave it up when i was 16 because i got sick of you know the amy b sort of philosophy and culture of perfectionism and I sort of around that time had started writing stuff on the piano and no, no one really sort of jumped on that. I, I kind of wish I had a bit of a push in that direction then. So it took me until I was early 30s to get back into the piano. I literally didn't play from that time until I moved to Lismore. And with your singing, did you have lessons as a child or...? That just came naturally. No, I actually never, I never thought that I could sing. And I remember my brother and sister used to tease me that I sounded like Tony Childs. You know, in retrospect, that was a compliment, but I thought it was an insult because they were teasing me. And so I really, I really just never thought that I could sing. And then I just started singing just in the a ukulele club that um, Jonty St. Clair, I don't know if you know Jonty, started in Lismore. You know, I would just sing with everyone else, like the 40 of us in the room playing ukulele and singing. And then I realised, actually, I can sing. <laughs> you certainly can. I can sing holding a ukulele, then I could probably sing, you know, playing an instrument that I actually learnt as a child. So I just kind of put the two together and realised, oh, it's um, it's possible. And from the videos that I've seen of your work, they seem very visual. Is there a visual element to your performances? Do you like to create some sort of show, I suppose, or sense of drama or just like to yeah, sing? I, the way I got into music was actually through performance art and performance like spoken word, poetry, character comedy, drag. That's how I came to music. I was around in Sydney, I'm trying to think of years, like pretty much 2000s, like the two, you know, 2000, the year 99 till like 2010. So for that decade, I was um, watching a lot of performance art, spoken word, poetry, and started putting on shows. So as part of Mardi Gras. So I did this annual show, which was kind of like drag. It was like all queer women, a lot of wogs doing, and like a lot of Westies <laughs> doing kind of, yeah, drag, but like, you know, pe- people that could sing actually, you know, not miming. It's got high quality stuff. Not that we were doing it professionally. We were just doing it for fun. Yeah, so that's how I got into music because I, I I was doing drag and character comedy and that sort of thing with, like, costumes. I was really into, like, costuming and um, making amazing props. I remember making a massive pig piñata for one of the shows. and So that's how I got into music. So, yeah, definitely the visual side of music is important to me. Creating an atmosphere, I think. All, all of it is art. It's not really about whether it's music. I've just done so many forms of art, like puppetry and and poetry, and to me this is just my next chapter. That's what I love to see. We talked about Diamond Glass during the the week. Uh, Laurie Anderson was another one. I I took a boyfriend to at the Opera House, and he was very straight. He was gay, but he was very very quiet. And halfway through the show he just leaned to me. He said, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) And I said, well, that's the whole point. We didn't last too much longer after that, but anyway. <laughs> I've, seen, I've 
seen a lot of obscure things, a lot of obscure performances, and I really absorbed a lot in that time. Like I was around in Sydney when the Red Rattler was getting started, and you know they were friends of mine, and so we we have yeah seen a lot of performance, a lot of good, a lot of bad, a lot of experimental, just a lot of people finding their voice really. And what were your musical influences? Say as you grew up, teenage years, these years. What what were your favourite? I, I was always exposed to hip hop and rap through my brother, which I ended up hating, <laughs> mainly because of the misogyny, not because of mm. the style. Yeah, that kind of drove me crazy. But I really actually got more into music when you know when I met a whole lot of Latinos in Japan, which just sounds weird, but because I was working in Japan and connected with a whole lot of Latinos there, and then went to you know and lived in Chile for a year and got into more Latin sort of stuff. That's probably what woke me up in terms of music. Kind of gets my blood going listening to yeah. You had a show planned for the Regent at Woolambar. Is that okay now to go ahead? The show that was originally planned for the Regent was part of a tour that was supposed to be happening right now. That was funded by Australia Council. So it was a big deal because I I won $25,000 to take three other creatives on the road for a month. So, yeah, so that... That is um, being messed up by COVID. Yeah, and that show, is so it's going to have, you know, there's going to be three musicians on stage, so another piano, guitarist, double bass and clarinet, and it's going to be with my my partner, Tia Mavanai, who's done a whole lot of projections for the show. So it's kind of like an atmospheric visual art show but with, you know, with music as well. So it's like it's a whole package so that show is not happening until April now, and that's the one that we're taking on the road. But what is happening, I hope, is on the 2nd of October in Mwollombar, I'll be doing a solo show. So that's me on the piano telling stories, playing music. <laughs> and tell our listeners what website to go to to get tickets for that. I think you need to go to the Regents um, site. I haven't played live now for you know, quite a while. So I'm kind of, I'm quite keen to get back into that. Do you get nervous before a show? I think when I've been performing regularly, then no, not really. Um, I mean, a little bit, but not. But then, you know, having these huge breaks in between playing live, yeah, I do actually get nervous because, you know, I forget that it's all going to be all right and that I'm actually good at what I do. (laughs) And when you start singing, do the nerves go away pretty quickly or? Usually, you know, into the second song I'm all right. Do you like living in this region? I love Lismore, yeah. I I really was like the best thing that I did to move here. Uh, It got me back into playing music. At the time I was working doing Healthy Herald. I don't know if you even know what Healthy Herald is, but (laughs) it's a it's a giraffe puppet that goes around to to primary schools teaching them about you know smoking and drinking and like health related things. How how to smoke and how to drink or how not to (laughs) I think Harold might be a bit of a naughty. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, it's been it's been really great. I love I love the whole area really. It is a wonderful place to to live, and so many creative people here. It's inc- even Tony Charles lives here. So let's yeah. hope she's not listening to this. <laughs> I love Tony Charles, by the way. It's not- <laughs> no, I like Tony Charles. I shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, look, it's lovely to talk to you. Fantastic to discover you. So I will be following you very intently and playing your music on my show and and look forward to seeing you live. Thank you, Michael. Maybe you want to play the new single that's just come out. 
you want to tell uh, us about that song? If I did a queer stories story in Mullum about that song or about the background behind that song. I won't go into too much about that, but it is about recovering from trauma. So, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people that will connect to it. But, yeah, it's an amazing clip that we shot north of Grafton after the bushfires tore through there and with all the regrowth coming back through. So, it, yeah, it's quite beautiful if people want to check it out on YouTube or Facebook. Very powerful. Oh, 
maybe I should say as well that Little Red is the single that I've released and that's the first single from the new album that I'm about to release. So that will be released sometime before the end of the year. I haven't noted that out yet. But anyway, keep your ears out. It's got quite a mix of um, genres in there. There's, you know, a bit of blues. There's a couple of Latin tracks in Spanish and um, so think like Chavela Vargas sort of style. It's quite a mix. It's got Dark Clown in it. It's got Little Red. It's got more kind of like upbeat songs. So I think that is kind of plan to release one or two more songs. There's a song I did which is a collaboration with um, Mr. Rhodes, who's a, a local Indigenous rapper and producer. And so he's produced the song that I've written and it's it's called Silence Breeze Injustice. So it's about deaths in custody. And I, I really want to add to the discussion that's happening around that. And, you know, I think that is kind of what my purpose is in my work is to contribute to discussions around things that I find important. Yeah, social movements that I'm part of and communities that I'm part of. And yeah, that is kind of my main purpose it's a bit frustrating when you release something and that sort of social media is kind of like very skewed towards like a pretty picture or and then you put out something that's like really got a lot of heart in it and meaning behind it and yeah so I want to make sure that kind of gets launched in the right way and has the right support surrounding it so I'm working on that before I release that one okay well thank you very much for coming on the show it's been lovely to meet you face to face and have a chat okay Jack Bye-bye. See you. See ya. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And we end this episode of Not Thinking Straight, a celebration of performance art, as we began it with Taylor Mack. The show is called A 24-Decade History of Popular Music. It is the history of popular music from 1776 to 2016. Music that was popular in the United States, but not necessarily American music. And not necessarily music that was popular throughout the entire country or the mainstream, sometimes just a small level community. In a performance art concert, um, you can be disturbed, annoyed, you can hate every single moment, you can hate me, you can just hate the entire experience, and I still will have succeeded. It is the genius of performance art, there is no failure. The catalyst for it was that I, when I was, uh, 1415, I, I went to the very first AIDS walk in San Francisco, and it was the first time I'd ever seen an out homosexual. And the first time I ever saw them, it was thousands of them all at the same time. So um, I had this pretty profound experience discovering uh, queer community and discovering queer agency for the first time and queer history for the very first time. There is a history in our um, in our nation of queers, and yet I had, in all of my education, uh, until I got into college, I'd never once been taught anything about anything queer. I still try to, to look for the ways that I can authentically fail on stage, and putting myself through a 24-hour concert experience is one of those. Yes, you are. You're such a pretty girl. Oh, look how pretty you are. Oh, my God. Just... It just felt like... It would be interesting to find out where the queers were in our American history. There's such a force to discredit that there ever was a queer history. They'll give us Walt Whitman, 
begrudgingly. You know, I grew up in California, so New England is history uh, until you go to Europe. So if you want to you do a story about the early days of the U.S., uh, you got to come to New England. <laughs> That's all there is to it. Today we went to, it's not the oldest church, but it's the oldest church that's been a church consecutively. The original meeting house, not this building, but, which was about 300 yards south of where we're standing, was where the first governor of Vermont was inaugurated. What I found interesting about that particular trip are the little nuggets that you hear that someone might just say offhandedly. Because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the little nuggets that aren't in the high school's history books. Oh, there was a stick in the church with a feather on it and a hammer on the other side. And there'd be a man at the back of the house and if anyone would fall asleep, he'd put that stick out there and he'd kind of tickle the, the woman. And if it was a guy, he would kind of knock the guy with the hammer. So of course, we're doing a 24-hour concert. I hear that little nugget, I'm like, I'm gonna have somebody with a stick at the back of the house that's waking people up during the 24-hour concert. I mean, that's mad genius, right? And that's the kind of thing you only find out from coming and hanging out with the people and hearing the little stories. It's called the Main Street Museum, and we went there and saw all their little artifacts. It was very uh, exciting. It kind of made me want to live in the museum. <laughs> you know, just, I'll just be an artifact, you know, yeah. would you not love me? That's what we did today. It was a it was a good day. A, a lot of fun people. When we perform at Dartmouth. We're going to perform the 1770s through the 1790s, um, 1776 through 1806. The first decade is just really about the founding of America and what it was actually founded on, as opposed to what they tell us in the books. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. It's time for everybody to be a soldier. And that's my subjective version of what it actually was founded on. And then in the 1780s, it's a lot of Robert Burns. <laughs> I'm not sure what our 1790s is going to be. It's something, it might have something to do with the, the fall of republicanism and the rise of democracy. So um, that's where we're. That's where we're we should leave. So now you and me can see the present of being here. This pleasantry is a frontier, surprising and new. The now's quite a coup. I do disavow my fears. history of popular music. It is a radical theory, a realness, a ritual. Sacrifice. Here we go!
In the following clip is from the Public Broadcasting Service. We turn now to the story of an artist who wrote and stars in a show that reconsiders the history of the United States. And it's probably safe to say that its scope and ambition is like no other musical. NewsHour Weekend's Yvette Feliciano has this profile of Pulitzer Prize finalist and MacArthur Genius Grant winner Taylor Mack. Fall of 2016, an audience of several hundred people gathered at a theater in Brooklyn, New York, for 24 hours straight. Today, tonight, and tomorrow. You heard right, 24 hours. The show, called A 24-Decade History of Popular Music, is written and performed by artist Taylor Mack. It's the story of American history, told through the songs of people on the margins of society. What was really fun about learning the history this way is that I could, I could um, dive into it and then I could kind of search for the, the, the queer aspect of the story. For this project, Mac aimed to create an expansive alternative history of the United States. The result is a show that breaks that story down into 24-hour-long sets that each describe a decade. To attend the show is to relive history through Mac's vision of America, from the founding of the country to gay liberation and beyond. So it's 1776. The big question uh, is how do we build ourselves while at the same time we're being torn apart? Mac began the project by workshopping one decade at a time at Joe's Pub, an intimate concert venue in New York City in 2011. Those were followed by performances in other cities, including Chicago, Nashville, and Minneapolis. During the show, and often with audience participation, Mac reenacts the story of everyone, from civil rights activists to immigrants to British loyalists during the Revolutionary War. Sometimes the show retells events from history in unexpected ways, like the Civil War. We're going to have our first battle. I didn't want to bring in ammunition into our show and guns and things like that. So I thought, what is the queer version of ammunition? And I thought, oh, it's probably a ping pong ball. Growing up in Stockton, California, Mac never saw LGBTQ people represented in the story of the United States. What was your understanding of what it meant to be queer? When I realized it, I, uh, I thought, oh, I can't tell anyone. Um, you know, that for the rest of my life, I can't tell anyone. I thought what I was was good, but I knew that other people didn't think that, so I couldn't tell other people that. Then, as a young teenager visiting San Francisco, Mac witnessed a life-changing event. It was 1987, and 6,000 people had gathered for San Francisco's first AIDS walk. I'd never met an out homosexual before. Um, so the first time I ever saw one, it was thousands of them all at the same time. The reason they were all together was because of the epidemic. So their community was being strengthened because it was being torn apart. I think subconsciously all my, all my theatrical work has been about that. Change it comes eventually. Performing this show for 24 hours is so rigorous that Mac has only done it that one time in Brooklyn. 
Mac trained for that as if it were a marathon, performing longer and longer sets in preparation. So what did it feel like to perform that last hour when you're alone on stage? I felt like, oh, we're going to make it. There was something peaceful about it. I knew physically that I could make the final hour, uh, even though it was very difficult. <laughs> I knew I was going to be able to. Next month, Mac will perform excerpts of the show at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Then it will be staged at the theater at Ace Hotel in Los Angeles as a series of four six-hour performances. Mac says that with each new audience, the show takes on new meaning. The audience for me, is almost always the central character. By the end of the piece, I, I think people almost click into that. They kind of realize that it's about all of us in this room uh, and this history that's been on our backs and, and what, we're, what can we do with this history. Studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you've been listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye. Well, you can twist and shout. Let it all hang out. But you won't fool the It's good for my voice, but you won't fool the children of the revolution. Now you won't fool the children of the revolution.